All right. You have a Bible. Why don't you turn to Jonah chapter 3, please. Jonah chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10, the entire chapter, and the message is entitled, The Preaching Prophet. Uh, Jonah has been presented to us in various snapshots as he rejected the call of God to preach to the city of Nineveh. In chapter 1, we saw the rebellious prophet fleeing the opposite direction of his commission, having a hard heart. In chapter 2, we saw the praying prophet being disciplined and preserved in the belly of the large fish, having a half-hearted repentance. Now we are going to see Jonah portrayed as the preaching prophet. And it unfolds for us in three movements. Let me read our text. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed the fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God, yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. And so Jonah portrayed as a preaching prophet in these three movements. First, the preaching word of Jonah to the Ninevites, verse 1 through 4. Second, we have the piercing words of Jonah to the Ninevites, verse 5 through 9. And thirdly, the pardoning words in spite of Jonah hating the Ninevites, verse 10. We begin with the first moment, the preaching words of Jonah to the Ninevites. Notice verse 1 and 2. Jonah received again the word of the Lord. The word of Yahweh that came to Jonah was divine revelation directly from God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, much like the first time, the first time, uh, the words of Yahweh came to Jonah in chapter 1, verse 1. And it says, Now the word of the Lord Yahweh came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying. Now he's the same Jonah. This is not a different Jonah. Okay? The same relationship, Amittai, same family name. 
He may have been in his hometown of Gadhefer, as we pointed out, where um, he had received the prophecy uh, that he proclaimed probably to Jeroboam II that God was going to restore territory to Israel, and that was a corrupt northern kingdom, um, from the entrance of Hamas to the, to the Sea of the Arabah. And we found that in Second Kings chapter 14, verse 25. Um, it was only about three miles north of Nazareth and Zebulun of Galilee, later what was known as Canaan, uh, Joshua 19.13, and you get the New Testament, you tie them together, you find that location. Now, Jonah was the prophet of God. God had chosen him, human, frail, weak, just like you and I, no different. He was, this was the second commission. God had um, not given up on him. Sometimes you and I may think he gives up on us. He does not. That's why we don't walk by feelings or emotions, but by what God's word reveals. The Lord Yahweh was not done with Jonah. Now, we have the benefit of knowing all the book of Jonah, but Jonah's taking it one step at a time, just like you and I do. Now, notice the mission of, for Jonah had not changed either. It was the same as before. Arise, go to Nineveh. That great city. Jonah was commanded to go to the city of Nineveh again. He would have to travel, as we stated before, about 500 miles to this great city, a metropolis of the Gentile world, in the east side of the Tigris River, some 40 miles north of Zeb Junction. Um, the three months trip is what it would take in those days, considerably long time. It isn't like we can get on a plane and be in the East Coast in four or five and a half hours or something. It took time. Uh, we don't have any idea how long Jonah took in terms of whether he would took some time for recover or not. We are left without those details, and God didn't seek them important enough for us to have. Um, but he did finally end up going. Now, the magnificent city of Nineveh, as you know, was the capital of the Syrian kingdom, originating with Nimrod back in Genesis 10, 11. And the word great, we've said, that appears 14 times in Jonah, six times for the major importance of the city and the nobles. That's the way it's used eight times. Uh, and then, um, uh, or six times, and eight times it's used for the uh, uh, importance or largeness, magnificence of the city as such. Now, there was Nineveh proper um, and four large cities that were... Um, situated on the edges of the kind of trapezoid Nineveh proper, a metropolis believed to have been three, 350 square miles. So a large, impressive city that um, Jonah had to be in awe when he got there. Now, the message for Jonah is also the same, but described differently. Notice there in verse 2 at the end, and preached to it, the message that I tell you in his first mission, it was, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Chapter 1, verse 2. The first dealt with the general wickedness. This word wickedness appears seven times in the book, and it means trouble, disagreement, unpleasant, synonymous with disaster and harm. And then two times it means straight evil, and we'll find that in chapter 3, verse 8 and 10. 
Now, the second mission, it was and preached to it the message that I tell you. The second deals with the specific content of the message. It means the proclamation. The words are recorded for us. Listen to them. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown instead of cry out against its wickedness. Notice in verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and preached. Jonah was compliant by his outward action as God is preaching through the prophet. It says, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, if the book of Jonah stopped here, we would have in our minds a conclusion. Jonah, what a servant. How obedient. Boy, he learned his lesson. The problem is, the next chapters tell us that's not so. So, we have the luxury of knowing the entire story so we can point out things about Jonah at this point that are absolutely true. He did repent in the belly of the great fish about his rebellion. But his heart was still unrepentant towards the hatred of the Assyrians. You say, how can that be? Well, it's happened in your life. It's happened in my life. Simple. We're rotten people. We love ourselves more than others. We don't mind getting forgiveness from God. We just don't like other people getting it. He did arise and go to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord, but his heart was hoping that they not repent. I can hear Jonah. The thing that I feared the most has come upon me. (laughs) He wanted time But he was wasting time. By his rebellion. Time is the greatest valuable thing that God has given to us. It's non-redeemable. The more you waste, the less you get done and the less you get ahead. It's wasted time. Notice Jonah saw the impressive city of Nineveh here in verse 3. It says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. There are some who say that this indicates a three-day journey, being going around the city, others through the city. I don't really care. Whatever it may be, it's not important. The important thing is that for three days, Jonah preached the word of God to the Ninevites. That's the important thing. Notice when he moves into chapter 4, Jonah preached the word of the Lord now. He finally arrives at the gate of the great city of Nineveh. It says, and Jonah began to enter the city in the first day's walk. Jonah, without any doubt, stood out like a sore thumb. His dress was different. The color of his skin, probably whitish-yellow. If he didn't cover his head, he was all bald. 
people took notice of Jonah through all these things. Now, Jonah had to have been impressed as much as he hated the Assyrians with the uh, striking awe of that city. The outer wall was 60 miles around, 100 feet high, and wide enough for three chariots to drive abreast on it. Spaced around the wall were 50 guard towers, 200 feet high. To give you an idea, from the floor to the ceiling is 25 feet. So, 200 feet, that's eight times higher, seven times higher. Impressive. The inner wall of the city was three miles in diameter. Its villages and suburbs stretched out over 20 miles. But equally, I can't help as Jonah's walking through preaching that he had to think of these barbaric savages and their wickedness. And maybe even a little intimidation or fear, even though he hated them. As you know, they would skin people alive. They would bury people up to their neck and let ants go to them or nail their tongue to the floor. They would um, stretch them apart in horses and tear them apart. They would put hooks in their jaws with ropes and carry them away and many other things. These guys were bad dudes. No conscience. It's important that you understand who God's going to save. Now, notice in 4 still, he immediately proclaimed the word of God to the people. Then he cried out and said, 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. I can't help to think how happy this made Jonah. Maybe even a little smirk on his face. You see, you and I know what's in man. So these are not exaggerations. The phrase, cry out, means to proclaim something aloud. The same as in his initial call in chapter 1, verse 2. Loud enough to be heard. Loud enough to call attention to the proclamation. And loud enough to give good enough consideration to understand the severity of the message. The message could not be clear. In 40 days, the city of Nineveh would be destroyed if they did not repent of their wickedness. The number 40, as you know, represents in Scripture the number of judgment. In Genesis seven fourteen, the judgment of the flood was for 40 days and 40 nights that it rained. The people of God journeyed in the wilderness for 40 years because of the rebellion, Numbers 14, 33 through 34. The judgment on man before a judge where he would have to be beat, he would only be beat 40 stripes, judgment, never 41. And if they were merciful, they would give him 39 Deuteronomy 25, 2, and 3. Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights prior to being tempted of the devil in Matthew 4, 2, and the other Gospels also. Judgment. And it was through Jonah that he did it. The second chance. You remember John Mark. 
he uh, left with Paul and his uncle Barnabas on the first missionary journey, but he bombed out. He left them out in the lurch out there alone. So when they wanted to go on the second missionary journey, uh, Barnabas, uh, uncle of John Mark, says he wanted to take him. And Paul says, no way, I'm not taking that loser. Who was right? Who was wrong? I think they both were right. Barnabas always take chances on people. And, Bar- and, and Paul can't take a chance on people in the seriousness of missions. <laughs> They're both right. But later on, Paul, in 2 Timothy 4.1, says, he commends Mark, John Mark as being profitable for the ministry. He was restored into ministry, though he had failed. The scriptures reveal to us that Jonah was not alone in disobeying God on his first commission. Abraham had two calls. Most people don't realize that. Genesis eleven twenty-seven to the end was first, and the second one in chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. The first one, he went to Haran with his father where he died, and he stayed there till he died. Then the second call came. Moses had two calls. Exodus 2, 11 through 14, you can... Back that up with Hebrews eleven twenty five through uh, 15 through 19. And then, of course, chapter 3 was the second of Exodus. Peter had two calls. When he was a fisherman in Matthew four eighteen through 19. And then, after he had denied the Lord three times, Jesus restored him again, calling him again in John 21, 15 through 19. He says, when you are converted, strengthen your brother. Hmm. Maybe you have um, disobeyed or rejected God's call for your life. Many people do, more than we probably think or know. But all God requires of you is to repent, and he'll use you once again. That's the type of God we serve. 2 Timothy 2.21 says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter vessels of honor he will be a vessel of honor sanctified and useful for the master prepared for every good work see god uses us in spite of us he uses us because he prepares us he enables us god desires that each of us be used by god to reach those who are lost blind and not spiritually dead as you and i were at one time the good moral pagan, as well as the immoral person. The common person that is working very hard all week long to make a living and take care of their families. The liberal progressive and millennials that live in a world of relativity, not believing the objective truth of society or that there's any objective truth, not believing there's a God or not believing the word of God. God can save every one of these people. They're not beyond his reach. Listen to John chapter 3.16 on down. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in him is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, John three sixteen through 19. But no one's out of the reach of God. But many don't want to be reached by God. The preaching words of Jonah to the Ninevites were declared. Second movement comes in the piercing words of Jonah to the Ninevites, verse 5 through 9. In verse 5, take note, the Ninevites responded to the words they heard through the preaching of Jonah. The people were convicted of their sins and repented. Listen to the words. So the people of Nineveh believed. Wow. The record is God's record. It's no exaggeration. We're going to see the extent of how many believed. Listen, I'll tell you ahead. All. Do you believe the book of Jonah? (laughs) They believe the authority and ability of God to destroy them and would do so in 40 days. They believe their sin would be forgiven by God if they repented. You see, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, 17 says. The people gave outward evidence of their inward repentance. Look at five still. They proclaimed the fast and put on sackcloth. They denied themselves food to be nourished. They fasted. They demonstrated their inward grief, mourning and humbling over their sin by an outward affliction of their physical bodies by sackcloth, a very coarse burlap type of material. Very uncomfortable. Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Hmm. Again, the number of people that believed and repented was all. Listen, from the greatest to the least of them. He's talking about the people in verse 5. The expression the greatest indicates the most wealthy, important, influential, and the most respected. The expression the least indicates the poorest, the most insignificant, the least important, and the most despised. From A to Z. All. That's hard to believe, even as a Christian. (laughs) But that's the record in the book of Jonah. Look at verse 6. The Ninevite king comes next. He responded also to the words he heard and believed through the preaching of Jonah. The king was also convicted of his sin and repented. Then the word came to the king in Nineveh. He also believed the authority and ability of God to destroy them and would do so in 40 days. He also believed his sins would be forgiven of God if he did repent. Because faith, again, comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. No other way. 
But then notice the king gave outward evidence of his inward repentance. At the, verse 6. And he arose from his throne and he laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. So he demonstrated the throne of God to be greater in authority than his own by arising and removing himself from his throne and laying aside his robe. This guy is not some soft-handed king. This is the king of Nineveh. He demonstrated his inward grief, mourning, and humbling over his sin by his outward affliction and sackcloth. Once again, a very coarse burlap material. He humbled himself. And then notice he equally demonstrated his worthlessness before God by sitting in ashes. Just like Job had done in Job 2.8. Wow. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Hmm. Notice verse 7 through 9. The Ninevite king made a proclamation to all his subjects. To humble themselves before God and repent, affirming and confirming the previous statement of the repentance by the people in verse 5 through the preaching of Jonah. Here in verse 7 and 8. The decree, notice, was to all by the authority of the king and his nobles. Listen to the words. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and the nobles, the king and his cabinet. The decree included man and beast to deny themselves food, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. That's pretty extreme. The decree was revealed their inward grief by their outward wearing of sackcloth again, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And the decree was for them to call out to God to be able to turn from their sins. Let me say that again. The decree was for them to call out to God to be able to turn from their sins. Listen to the words. And cry mightily to God, yes, let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hand, his own personal hand. The cry was to turn from their own personal evil and violence. But the order is important here. First, a person cries out to God. Then God enables that person to turn from their evil and to abandon it. You never can do it by yourself. God does not believe in rehab. Or psychology. The only cure for a sinner is repentance and calling on God. I presume we all qualify. 
Notice verse 9, the decree of the king was based on an uncertain hope. Listen to his words. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Question mark. (laughs) The king was not sure. But he had nothing to lose. The king was hoping God would turn from his wrath, honor the repentance, and not destroy them. The Assyrians got saved on a maybe. Wow. What an incredible book we have before us. Historical, literal. On May 24th, 1778, John Wesley heard Luther's preface to the Romans. During a Moravian meeting in Aldersgate Street in London, and he said this, quote, While he was describing the changes which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation and an assurance was given to me that he had taken my sins away even mine, and save me from the law of sin and death. The power of God's word, ladies and gentlemen, is just amazing. That's why God continues to use it. He honors his word above his name. He doesn't necessarily honor the man who's preaching it. He honors his word. He does his work in spite of the man. So much for pastor worship. Musician worship. I believe the angels throw up in heaven. The word of God has been seen. And has been doing one thing all along. From the beginning of time, saving sinners. The word of God is the revelation of and about God himself as the creator, the sustainer, and the redeemer of mankind. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians 1.15-17, he sustains, he holds all things together, he is the redeemer. The word of God reveals the fall of man and the plan of salvation and redemption through the blood Of the promised Messiah. Beginning Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman. A woman has no seed. The man provides the seed. She has an egg. The province of the virgin birth. Isaiah 7.14. Repeats it. Behold a virgin shall bear a son. Shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. And and Matthew 1.23. Confirms the fulfillment of that prophecy. As Mary is impregnated by the Holy Spirit of God. Wow. Wow. The preaching of the word of God is the way God has chosen to save mankind through repentance. But see, preaching is able to accomplish salvation. Romans 1, 16 through 17 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the power of God unto salvation to everyone, for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It is written, the just shall live by faith, quoting Habakkuk 2.4. It's the power of God to salvation, Jew and Gentile. 
No other. But preaching is considered foolishness to sinners. You and I probably consider it foolishness. Ah, those crazy Christians, they're nuts. Hmm. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 19. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. In fact, Paul will go on in Corinthians and say, if they would have known by human wisdom that Jesus was God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Wow. You see, preaching is not based on human wisdom. First Corinthians 2, 1 through 4 says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellency of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. Not with sociology, not psychology, not as an orator, not as a philosopher, but a vessel of the word of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. Wow. You and I have experienced that power. You see, the piercing words of Jonah to the Ninevites are just incredible. Notice the third movement. One verse. <laughs> the pardoning words in spite of Jonah hating the Ninevites. God qualified everything that had taken place in Nineveh up to this point, to be true and genuine repentance. This is God speaking. If you hard and find to believe the greatest miracle, God says all believed. Listen to his words in 10. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil ways. He qualifies what has taken place. The revelation of God is that he saw their works as genuine, demonstrating that evidence of a true heart and repentance. God saw the heart. Now you and I look at people, listen to people, and we say, ah, he's an idiot. He's, he's, he's a con artist. Because we can't see the heart. We have to let time run. Now we can conclude that by because we know certain people. But it doesn't mean that God can't change them. It may be hard for us to believe that they can or that they're going to change. So we let time run. But God can know immediately. In fact, he knows before they repent. <laughs> the outward physical evidence represent a true sign of grief and repentance by the people. The king and the nobles. That's what God is saying. He's the one that's making this judgment. The fasting, the putting on of sackcloth, the sitting in ashes. I can, I can just see Jonah walking through there. Yeah, these guys, you know, they, they're not repentant. They're, they're evil. Mm -mm. 
The accuracy and authority of this declaration is guaranteed by two attributes of God. His omnipresence, he is present everywhere at the same time, at all times. Try that. The second is omniscience. He knows everything. Nothing is hidden from him, even what is in our heart. You and I have no capacity for that. Never will. Notice the adjudication of God is that they had turned from the evil way. This is God speaking. Their ability to turn from their personal evil way is by having repented. Then God gave them the ability. The phrase evil ways means wicked manner or course of life. Think of what you did and how you lived prior to Christ. And you couldn't turn from that until you turned to God and then he gave you the ability to turn from that sin and that course of life. As well as I. No person can turn from sin until they repent and are born again. The accuracy and authority of this declaration is also guaranteed by the same two attributes of God. His omnipresence, that he's present everywhere at the same time at all times. His omniscience, that he knows everything, nothing hidden from him, not even the heart. Not a thought, nothing. Then notice, God acquitted every person in Nineveh to be truly a genuinely forgiven sinner. Wow. Listen to the words. And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. The revelation of God is that he repented of the destructive judgment that he was about to bring on them due to their repentance. This is God declaring it. You cannot disbelieve this. You cannot question this. This is where people get in trouble having the problem with the fact that God repented. The word relent is translated repent also throughout the Old Testament. The word is most, in its basic meaning, means to change one's mind. Therefore, people find a contradiction that God said he was going to destroy Nineveh in 40 days, and now he changed his mind. The word repent or relent is what is called an anthropomorphic term, a big word that describes human actions to God so that we can understand what God is doing and what is occurring. Yet human language is very limited and unable to describe some of the actions of God. This is clearly seen when the scriptures say the hand of the Lord, the eye of the Lord, the arm of the Lord. 
For God has no eyes, he has no arm, and he has no hand. He's a spirit. But it's clear that the words are describing for the person to understand the acts of God. The eye being able to see and be aware. The arm and the hand willing and able to help or destroy, depending on the context. But God doesn't need a hand. He just has to think it and it's done. So human language is limited. So the truth of the matter is that God did not change his mind or contradict himself, but rather the people changed their minds so God acted in accord, according to his nature, character, and his attributes and promises. In other words, God is holy and cannot look upon sin with any sense of permission or any sort of condonance to it. But must judge and pass judgment on all sin if it's not repented from. But God has given an option to human beings who are fallen to repent by his grace. And if those who hear that gospel, the word of God, and they repent and are saved, then God forgives that individual. It has nothing to do with fairness. It has everything to do with God's grace and his ability to do so. So we should have no problem with the word relent or repent when it comes to God. It doesn't mean exactly what it means to us. It means that God has honored his nature and his word as he has given it out. In fact, God later on will destroy them because they returned to wickedness through the hand of Babylon and Medo, Persia. The Medes, really, in 612 B.C. Right now it's about um, 765. Now, notice the adjudication of God was that he did it. He did not bring the destructive judgment to pass. Due to their repentance. So God really is not contradicting himself. Commentators, um, preachers and teachers have labeled this section. The greatest revival recorded. When I was younger, I used to believe it and repeat it like a parrot. But they're mistaken. They're wrong. The reason being that revival in its truest biblical sense is for the believer and believers who have become apathetic, compromising, and have no real passion for God any longer. Or preaching his words to non-believers. Let me confirm this through scripture. Ezra 9.9 For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage. But he extended mercy to us in the sight of the king of Persia to revive us 
to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. That's the people of God, Israel. Revived us. Psalm 80, verse 18. Then we will not turn back from you. Referring to God. Revive us and we will call upon your name. The people of God. Psalm 85, 6. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Rhetorical question. Yes. One more. Hosea 6, 2. If you remember, we were there while back after two days he god will revive us on the third day he will raise up raises up that we may live in his sight israel the people of god revival is for believers not non-believers now having said that Once the believer is revived in their love and passion for God, then the overflow and consequences of God's people being revived is that they will reach out to the non-believer. Listen carefully. A revival of God's people, be it of one or many, will result in evangelism of the lost, having loving compassion for them, but evangelism in and of itself is not revival or evidence of a revival, but the natural responsibility and function of the church. Very, very clear. So revival is for the people of God, and the overflow revival is mass evangelism where God saves many. Simple. The greatest authority on revival is Dr. J. Edwin Orr. When you can and as you can and while you can, look him up on the internet and listen to some of his teaching and read. He's the greatest authority. I was had the privilege to hear him many times in Costa Mesa, about the 80s or so, when Pastor Chuck was alive. Incredible. Incredible man. So this is not the greatest revival then, but the greatest miracle in the book of Jonah. The entire populace of Nineveh was saved and forgiven and judgment was averted. Wow. We think the United States is done. As far as I'm concerned, yes. But I don't know about God. Wow. You see, The one God was trying to revive was Jonah, his prophet. But he would have none of it. For the forgiveness and salvation of the Assyrians displeased him exceedingly. And he became angry. Chapter 4 verse 1 is going to tell us. Jonah was done. He was just been there. I mean, life's a drab. It's worse than black and white. Let me give you the best illustration of this point of the greatest miracle. Are you ready? You and I. 
Can you believe that you are saved? Can you believe that God has forgiven you of everything you ever did? Too much. Hmm. God did not make hell or the lake of fire for any human being, but for Satan and his angels. Matthew 25, 41 tells us. Yet many sinners will be in hell or Hades right after they give their last breath because they did not believe they had to repent and accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Jesus is the authority on this, by the way. Luke 16, 19 through 31, Lazarus and the rich man. One in the place of comfort, bosom of Abraham, paradise. The other one, the place of torment. Waiting for the white throne judgment to be cast in the lake of fire. Wow. He didn't have to go there. He chose to go there. Those who have believed, repented, will be instantly present before the Lord right after their last breath. That's the flip side, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. Hmm. Because they're good? No, because they're good for nothing. And they've agreed with God and repented. Now, God can and will save the most horrible kind of sinners that you can imagine who ask God to forgive them and they repent. Now, you and I may not like that, but that's just tough. The number of sins that are committed by a person are not a problem for God. The kind of sins are no hindrance to God. The one who generally repents is forgiven from all their past sins. In fact, they are cast as far as the east and the west, buried in the deepest ocean, and never ever mentioned again by God. Psalm 103.12, Micah 7.19, Hebrews 10.17. Wow. Jonah was not listening to the heart of God. He just wasn't getting it. Let me give you the heart of God. Ezekiel 18.23 says, God speaking, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? Rhetorical question, having only one correct answer, says the Lord. And not that he should turn from his ways and live? Does God have pleasure? The answer is no. That's the right answer. Ezekiel 18.32, the heart of God again. For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Wow. Can't get any simpler than that. It can't be any clearer. The pardoning words in spite of Jonah hating the Ninevites are just rich. Like soothing oil. Hmm. 
This was Jonah, the preaching prophet. Being exposed more and more by these unfolding movements. The preaching words of Jonah to the Ninevites. The piercing words of Jonah to the Ninevites. And the pardoning words in spite of Jonah hating the Ninevites. Man. Maybe you're here today. And you say, I'm a Ninevite. I'm out there. And God can save you. God can forgive you if you call on his name. But it is your choice. I would love to see you get saved. (laughs) God can do it. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. And Lord, we just thank you for your incredible mercy. For your love for us. For sinners. And Lord, I pray even now for those that are here and those over the internet, Lord, and even the radio. That your hand be upon them, that you would convict them of their sin and allow them to understand how much you love them, that they call on your name. As your heads bow, if if you don't know Jesus Christ and you want to be saved, you want to repent, you agree with what the words of Jonah have proclaimed and you believe the words of God that he said about the Ninevites and you want him to forgive you, then you can do that right now through a simple prayer of repentance. This is your prayer to him, not us. And he's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.